So this evening, I think as many of you know from the indication on the website, I want to follow up on the sessions from, uh, from July. And then I gave three talks on Buddhist practice and the uh, transformation of racism. I wanted to follow it up by particularly talking about a number of uh, dimensions of this larger context that are, that are inspiring for me and particularly make the connection between the core of Buddhist practice and the core of nonviolent action, particularly as we learn about it from Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And very much in the same uh, approach that we heard from, from Robin. So it's very fitting that we heard that example of uh, one kind of nonviolent action. So that's what I want to explore um, this evening. I want, you know, the sequence of my talk will be, I'll talk first on the core of Buddhist practice being the transformation of dukkha, usually translated as suffering, but I'll give a translation of dukkha as reactivity. Uh, the transformation of dukkha or reactivity coming to the end of dukkha. And then secondly, I'll point to the parallels between that teaching and the understanding of nonviolent action by Dr. King. And similarly, we could go to Gandhi or to Dorothy Day and so forth. And then thirdly, I want to explore um, six core dimensions of nonviolent action. And my hope is that this can be inspiring. I want to point to a lot of aspects of this which can be quite inspiring. But I think there's a, a beautiful and powerful, profound continuity between the core of our practice, which we usually interpret as more of an inner practice, and the practice of nonviolence, which we usually interpret more as a way of practicing in the social context, the collective context. So that's what I want to explore this evening. And I'll have, again, I think there'll be continuity with what I explored uh, in July when I was looking at various ways that we could uh, understand the history of racism uh, the, almost like the formation of white and black as a divide and conquer strategy by the, by the wealthy elites, looking at the nature of collective, collective dukkha or how reactivity gets institutionalized, and then looking at uh, inner ways of transformation, as well as in the, the last talk, focusing on the ethical dimension, how we uh, have a commitment to ending harm that comes from us, and we could say also ending harm that we're witness to. So that this will connect with those, those three talks from July. So many of you know that 
The Buddha very famously once said, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. And some have taken this to be a summary, but there is a lot of confusion about what uh, dukkha is. There are multiple meanings of dukkha, and the usual translation that we have is uh, dukkha is suffering. And it can be uh, often confusing to know what the end of dukkha means. You know, is the end of dukkha mean the end of difficult experiences? That's what I thought initially. When I was in my 20s and studying meditation, I thought that I would uh, go to a level of depth of practice and I wouldn't have any problems anymore. Has anyone had that idea at some point in your practice? How many people have found that that worked out? No. It didn't work out for me either. And so uh, some of this, I think, is because there are actually, in the text, are multiple meanings of dukkha. There is an initial meaning that probably is most prevalent where uh, dukkha simply means the unpleasant, where dukkha is, in the original language, uh, the word is related etymologically to a sense of a wheel that doesn't fit very evenly uh, onto the axle. So there's a bumpy ride. So the first meaning of dukkha is having a bumpy ride, so to speak. Uh, but this is actually dukkha as being with the unpleasant. And this is, you know, we can remember the passages where the Buddha says, uh, birth is dukkha. Old age is dukkha, suffering is dukkha, or um, uh, illness is dukkha, getting old is dukkha. And, and yet if we ask, what is the end of dukkha? It doesn't make sense that the end of dukkha is the end of the unpleasant. The Buddha himself, later in his life, had some health issues. And so the end of dukkha can't mean the end of the unpleasant. There's a second meaning, which is uh, sometimes called the, uh, the discomfort of change, that everything that is pleasant will later become unpleasant. This is a second sense of dukkha. But again, we can, we can see that that is just how things work. The end of dukkha doesn't mean the end of pleasant things sometimes becoming or inevitably becoming unpleasant. And there's a third meaning of dukkha, which is in the text, which is uh, called Sankara dukkha. And this is the dukkha of nothing in our experience by itself being capable of giving us happiness. All conditioned phenomena cannot give us lasting happiness. We can't have this experience or that experience and gain lasting happiness from it. And it's sometimes said that this is a form of dukkha, you know, that it's uh, uh, that nothing can give lasting satisfaction, therefore, all things are dukkha. But again, if we ask, what does the end of dukkha mean? 
it doesn't mean the end of that kind of dukkha because that just is the way things are and that continues. So there's a fourth meaning of dukkha which uh, is connected with a teaching that is probably my favorite Buddhist teaching, the teaching of the two arrows, which how many of you know that teaching? So this is the, this is the teaching where the Buddha says, uh, everyone experiences at times the unpleasant. How, is the, uh, how does the practitioner differ from the non-practitioner? And he said, yes, everyone experiences at times the unpleasant. Unpleasant body experiences, we could say, emotional experiences, interpersonal experiences, injustice, and so forth. And so that is something that, again, is a given of experience. Everyone has that experience. The Buddha called that the first arrow. And he said that everyone at times is shot by the first arrow. Where the practitioner differs from the non-practitioner, and again, we have to remember that the non-practitioner means us when we're not practicing, uh, that where the difference is, is that the non-practitioner being shot by the first arrow, having a difficult experience, an unpleasant experience, will tend to shoot a second arrow at, at oneself or at others as if that would help. And so I have unpleasant physical experiences and I tense around them. That's shooting the second arrow. I walk across the room. I trip on a uh, shoe that I left there last night. I criticize myself. I judge myself harshly. Uh, that's the second arrow, right? I have a difficult interaction with someone. Someone says something that I don't like. I react right back to that person with something nasty. That's shooting the second arrow. What the Buddha said is that we can learn not to shoot the second arrow. First arrow is a given. The second arrow uh, is something that's in our power to shoot or not to shoot. And in fact, I would say that the meaning of dukkha is more this sense of shooting the second arrow. And I, I would call that reactivity, that it's a kind of compulsive pushing away of the unpleasant, pushing away of what we don't like. And there's also another form of reactivity. We can remember this from, if you were at my talk, uh, I think the first talk I gave, where I talked about how when there's something pleasant, we will tend to grab hold of it. When there's something un unpleasant and we're not mindful, we'll tend to push it away. That points to two forms of reactivity, grasping after the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant. And I would say that the end of dukkha is when there's not reactivity. The end of dukkha is when there's not grasping and there's not that compulsive pushing away. Again, the nature of reactivity is that tends to be compulsive, semi-conscious, automatic, habitual. Again, I'm giving a more precise account of what reactivity is. So I would say that this is right at the core of Buddhist practice. This is 
the essence of what we're doing. Every, all the qualities which we develop of loving kindness or compassion or mindfulness or equanimity, all of these help us to come to the end of dukkha. The end of dukkha is freedom. The end of dukkha is being able to be responsive rather than reactive, to use that language. And so what we can see is that what this means is that if, if uh, I have something painful in my experience, difficult in my experience, whether it's from something in my own mind or something that someone else does or says, or something in a larger society, what we're encouraged to do is to respond skillfully to that, re to that unpleasant experience, but non-reactively. And all of our practice, whether it's wise speech or skillful action, is of that nature. Something difficult or painful occurs, injustice, we respond, but we respond, as it were, non-reactively. And there's an understanding that when there is something painful or difficult in the world, we learn how to respond fully but non-reactively. What I'll point out in a moment is that that's right at the center of the nonviolent action of Dr. King, Gandhi, Dorothy Day, and others. We respond fully, we're not passive, but we try to do so non-reactively because there's an understanding that responding reactively just keeps things going in cycles. We know that from our personal experience. We have a difficult encounter with someone, the person's reactive towards me, I'm reactive toward the, towards that person, and we're off to the races, right? How many people know that dynamic pretty well from your experience, right? We, we can see that. And we can also see that happening more collectively. Most wars, most conflicts turn into two sides, each shooting second arrows at each other. So the core understanding is that there's another way. So we find from the Buddha in the Dhammapada, he says, violence never ends with violence. Only love can heal violence. This is an eternal law. In some translations, it's uh, hatred never ends with hatred. Only non-hatred can heal hatred. This is an eternal law. There's a sense that, in other words, we'll see this very clearly with Dr. King, that the means have to be aligned with our end. We can't use a questionable means to get to a good end. Gandhi said something very similar. An eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. And he said also, very, very parallel to the Buddha, hatred can be overcome only by love. That's Gandhi. King talked about the means and the ends have to, having to be aligned. Non-injury to the opponents was at the center. And I think a, a very similar expression, Terry, we can use the, this slide five at this point. 
very similar understanding comes from Thich Nhat Hanh. Nonviolent action, born of the awareness of suffering and nurtured by love, is the most effective way to confront adversity. We can see down at the bottom an image of Thich Nhat Hanh. I think this was from 1967 of him with Dr. King. So thanks. Thanks for that, Terry. And I have another quote. Um, this is expressing the same idea. I'm, uh, I bet you don't know who said this. Always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them, and then you destroy yourself. That's uh, Richard Nixon in his farewell, his farewell uh, speech to his staff. Anyway, I won't analyze that one, but that is a very similar sentiment. So I want to point, uh, talk some about Dr. King and then talk about these sort of six uh, guidelines for non-reactive action. And I hear we're talking more about social action, but we could also apply this to non-reactive uh, speech, non-reactive interpersonal relationships. That's what we're looking for. And again, we um, have mostly focused in the uh, insight meditation communities of people who didn't grow up as Buddhists. We've mostly have focused on inner practices, but there's a tremendous need to say, how does this practice of transforming reactivity translate into my interpersonal relationships into social action. That's what, that's what I'll be exploring, particularly the latter. So many people believe that Dr. King is the, actually the greatest moral and spiritual figure uh, in the history of our country. And I think, believe I share that. A little bit about his life, born in 1929 in Atlanta. You can go to Atlanta, and his house is available to go into. I was there last, last year, was able to go to, into his house. His father, was his, uh, his father was a minister, and his mother was a church organist and, and choir leader, so he was very much brought up in the, in the church. At the age of 15, he went to college, to Morehouse College, and at 18, he decided to enter the mis uh, ministry going to uh, Crozer Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. Later, he got a doctorate from uh, Boston University. In his studies, he was very influenced by Gandhi, he, among others. He was influenced by a lot of people, but he particularly came to see that nonviolence wasn't, which he had thought from the teachings of Jesus, was just something applicable to interpersonal relations. From reading Gandhi, he saw how this whole ethical understanding could be brought to the social realm. So, interestingly, his first uh, position as a minister was in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955. And I think you know that there is a serendipity of that. A short time after he arrived there, Rosa Parks refused to get off the bus. There was the bus boycott, which, which he was a leader of. Uh, it, was, it was successful. He 
worked continually with the Southern Christian Leadership uh, Conference, organized a number of different movements in Georgia, Alabama, 1963 March on Washington, uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, organized the marches to from Selma to Montgomery and so forth. Many of you have seen the film and started then to take the movement north to Chicago and other places, bringing the movement to the north. In 1967, I'll come back to this, he had a very important uh, move where he started talking about the Vietnam War. And this led to him being very, very unpopular, including with the civil rights movement. I'll come back to that it really is about integrity. And then in his last year of life, he organized the Poor People's Campaign uh, in Washington, D.C., and was, as many, I think everyone knows, assassinated on April 4th, 1968. <clears throat> so I want to talk about six different uh, areas of uh, nonviolent action. And in the first one, I'm going to play a recording from Dr. King. And my first, uh, my first theme is that in nonviolent action, we want to identify the core systems of oppression. And King very famously talked in the last year of his life about combating uh, racism, poverty, and militarism, he saw those as intimately connected. And so this is a excerpt from his speech called Beyond Vietnam, which marked his break with the administration and his own uh, attempt to clarify a position against the war. So let me see, I'll do sharing the screen. And let's see. Okay, this should work. Okay. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. 
the true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of South America and say this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. So that's powerful to listen to. 1967, April 4th, uh, one year to the day before he was assassinated. And so this first theme is that of uh, identifying the core systems of oppression. And again, we could, we could bring in other analyses of race, class, gender, sexual orientation, nature of the climate, and see how they interlock. So I want to just name that theme. Of course, we could do a lot more with each of these. The second, I think, really crucial theme is that there's a very positive vision. Much, I would say, of contemporary activism doesn't really have a clear vision or even goal. Often it's just mostly against what's happening, which has its legitimacy, but there is an incompleteness there. And so there's a very important role for the, the vision. Um, and the vision really comes, I think, in, in King's work, and I think it really has resonance with what we find in Buddhist practice, with an understanding that the depths of human nature are beautiful. You know, people say this in different ways. Uh, King or Gandhi would say that human nature is basically good. You know, or that in Christian language, each person is created in the image of God. In Buddhist language, we would say everyone has Buddha nature or everyone is potentially awake. You know, Gandhi talked about love and nonviolence as the law of our being. And... This understanding 
really dictates how those who are on the other side of the issue are faced, a very crucial aspect of the whole approach and really uh, goes hand in hand with non-reactivity because the other side is not seen somehow as evil to be destroyed. The aim uh, for Dr. King is actually reconciliation and the creation of a beloved community. So we'll go to the next slide. Terry, I think slide number one here. So he says, the end is reconciliation, the end is redemption, the end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of human beings. Again, it's keeping that vision in mind, reconciliation, the beloved community. Having a sense also, we can let go of the slide now, a sense of interdependence. You know, the famous line from Letters from a Birmingham Jail. I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So again, the sense of interconnection. There's another aspect of the positive vision, which is a little bit hidden in our understanding, as I think is very strong for Dr. King. And this is the uh, vision of a multiracial movement going against the tendencies to divide and conquer. And this history is not so well known, but there's been throughout U.S. history a number of very strong examples of multiracial, we call it solidarity, multiracial movements. And I just wanted to show some images of these in a moment. Not right now, Terry, but just in a moment. But we can remember back that the whole creation of the sense of white and black at the end of the 17th century came about as a reaction by the ruling elites against a multiracial rebellion against the wealthy, called Bacon's Rebellion if you remember that history I gave. And there's a long history, if you can study it, of these kind of communities, of in the South Maroon communities with Native people, Black people, white people living together. Some of you may have seen the film about four years ago called The Free State of Jones. Anyone see that? Worth seeing. It's an interesting film. It's about multiracial community and uh, opposition to the Confederacy in Mississippi in 1864, 65, and beyond. Not well known as a history, you know? And some other, we can start with the images now. I'll just show you a few images that I, for me, are very inspiring. The first one is from the, uh, some of the Southern movements. There were, there was in the late 1800s, there was the populist movement, which was multiracial. This is the Southern Tenant Farmers Meeting. You can see it's a multiracial gathering in Arkansas in 1937. And you can see the next slide is of the March on Washington. Again, very strong uh, multiracial movement. The next slide is of the Poor People's Campaign 
1968. Again, you can see can see that uh, uh, multiracial dimension of this. And there were there are other examples. Uh, some of you may know what happened with uh, Fred Hampton in Chicago, 1969. Not well known, but look that up on YouTube. Look up some of his talks. <clears throat> so thanks. We can go back to uh, we can drop the slides now. So that second theme is that of having a positive vision. And I think having this vision of a, a multiracial movement can really guide one. And, and I think in large part that means connecting uh, racial justice issues with economic justice issues. That's really at the center of it. I think I mentioned in my talks being very influenced by Ian Haney Lopez's work, who's brought that point out very strongly, particularly in a book called Merge Left. The third theme is that there, as I mentioned, there's an alignment of means and ends. We don't let the ends, as it, as it were, justify the means. You know, that there's an alignment. In other words, there is a sense of integrity. And again, this is not always very clear in a great deal of contemporary activism. King talked about the means needing to be as pure as the end. And he also, to give the example of the uh, talk that he gave, that we heard, 1967, he actually went through a period of anguish, wondering whether to give this talk on Vietnam. But I would say that part of the way that the means and the ends are connected is that there's a sense of our own integrity. And here, a sense of the integrity of Dr. King. After some time, he felt like he could not be silent about Vietnam. He had a tremendous cost from doing so. He was deeply criticized by many uh, editorials in the New York Times and Washington Post. Uh, Washington Post said, King has diminished his usefulness to his cause, his country, his people. Life magazine said that the speech gave demagogic slander that sounded like uh, a script for Radio Hanoi. When he died, he had a disapproval rating of 75%. This is not always remembered as we sometimes just look on the sort of safer aspects of Dr. King, but there is this very crucial aspect of integrity. So that's my third theme, connection of the means and ends and integrity. The fourth theme of our, of our uh, non-reactive, non-violent action is that there's a very crucial connection of inner and outer work. And this, again, is something that we can uh, uh, do based, based on our Buddhist practice, our, you know, our various forms of meditation. For Dr. King, this was more prayer, different kinds of ritual, singing, and so forth. What's very key is that the difficult emotions can be transformed, the anger, the fear, the anxiety, uh, the hatred, the reactivity, that this is a crucial part of nonviolent action. So again, there's an integral connection of inner and outer, which is very, very crucial. You know, and I'm not going to talk about it so much now, but one of my thoughts that I've often had is almost like an imaginary dialogue between the Buddha and Dr. King. 
you know, where each can learn from each other. And, you know, and there, you know, the, the meditative ways of working with greed, hatred, uh, fear, anger, and so forth are so central. Gandhi also said that the movement uh, of nonviolence or the practice of nonviolence requires what he called self-purification. And King talked about how at the heart of our anger, uh, heart of our movement, I should say, is the transformation of anger. Uh, I think this is, I'm on my, I think I'm on my fifth theme, is that um, there's the centrality of empathy and compassion. And we can go to the slide now, the next slide. This is a, a quote that is from the uh, October 2016 from, uh, this is a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle who I like, Otis Taylor. He said, I argue that the lack of empathy is the most pressing issue in America and it's more compelling than national security threats, bad trade deals, unpaid taxes, and deleted emails. And this quality of empathy, including towards one op one's opponents, is I think central to nonviolent action. I think it would also be very central to non-reactive speech with difficult in difficult situations. Uh, next slide again on empathy. This is from uh, Kat Zavis, who uh, works with the Network of Spiritual Progressives. She talks about prophetic empathy, prophetic insofar as it challenges the aspects of the systems that produce hatred, sexism, racism, classism, and environmental irresponsibility, but also calls people back to their highest selves. Prophetic empathy insists on listening to others with an open, compassionate heart and with genuine curiosity about their life experiences and feelings, helping them articulate their deepest needs while powerfully advocating for a loving world. Prophetic empathy affirms the humanity of all people it recognizes that people can be oppressors and oppressed at the same time, and that in fact most of us in Western societies are in that situation. So we can have compassion for ourselves being in that mixed place. So we can let go of the slide now. So the sense of empathy as a practice where we attempt to um, understand the other understand the other person, including the opponent. And this was so central for Dr. King. He once wrote that, uh, this is from his writing, he said, the white man's personality is greatly distorted by segregation and his soul is greatly scarred. He said that the work of defeating segregation was for the bodies of black folks and the souls of white folk. To be a white supremacist, to hold hatred in your heart for so many and to inflict violence on others destroys your soul, he said. And then the last, the last theme I want to mention is that, this is going back to the quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, that nonviolent action could be called love in action. And again, King spoke repeatedly about how love was at the center of the movement. 
quite striking. We usually think about love as something more individual or interpersonal, but he thought it was possible to bring a sense of love to a movement. Again, love is deeply, deeply non-reactive. How can this be the center of a movement? From Dr. King, I have decided to stick to love, for I know that love is ultimately the only answer to the problems of humanity. Hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. If you are searching for the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And so again, this is a love that can be with people who are difficult. I like to think it as equivalent to sometimes to a kind of tough love or tough metta that can be with uh, difficult situations but not lose touch with the heart. A very, very challenging practice, right? It's challenging for us even in probably discussions with our partners or friends when there are difficulties. But this again is the vision to bring love into the movement. He said the love ethic is the center of our movement. Love is the only force, King said, capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We will never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enmity or an en enemy by getting rid of enmity. By its very nature, hate destroys and bears, tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. And I want to just close with two things. One is uh, to say something, to repeat a assessment that was made by uh, the Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was in the Civil Rights Movement, marched with Dr. King in Selma. And he said this after the death of Dr. King. He said, the future of America depends on the American response to the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. The future of America depends on the American response to the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. And then I'll end with uh, a wonderful passage. We'll go to the last slide, Terry. This is from uh, John Lewis, recently departed congressman. Some of you may know this. This is his uh, speaking about love in action. And it, it gives, again, an illustration of how love could be at the center of the movement. When we were sitting in, it was love in action. When we went on the Freedom Ride, it was love in action. The march from Selma to Montgomery was love in action. We do it not simply because it's the right thing to do, but it's love in action that we love our country, we love a democratic society, and so we have to move our feet. So that's my offering tonight. And I want to invite us just to pause for a moment and to reflect on, was there anything from the talk that 
moved you or that uh, led to something coming alive? What's alive for you right now after the talk? Maybe from something you heard from the portion of the speech we played. What's alive for you? What sparked? So what I'd like to invite now is for uh, us to go into groups of three, and we'll have about, let's have about uh, nine minutes, Terry, and there'll be a chance for people to talk in groups of three. Some of them might be groups of two or four, but just have uh, a chance to talk, share what might have been meaningful or alive for you, Maybe take two minutes each, and then you'll have a little bit of time to talk with each other. So we can go right into, right into the group now, Terry.